Okay. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Idea Market podcast. Once again, we are joined uh, by Michael Elias, the CEO, and we are joined by Jeff Atwood, the original founder of Stack Exchange, the co-founder of Discourse, and the the writer at codinghorror.com. Uh, Jeff, thanks for being with us. Um, we're pretty excited about this because um, you're, you know, as we were just talking about, really, you know, looking at the history, which you write about in your about section, and just looking at your, your work history through all these huge projects, I mean, Stack Exchange itself, um, which I, I may be taking, am I taking the newest name? Because the name changed to something else, right? Well, they did that thing where they went through a couple iterations, the final name is Stack Overflow, because that's the biggest site. Mm. But there is actually a network of sites, uh, the Stack Exchange Network. It's a network of Q&A sites. So there there are more than one, and some of them actually are quite popular. I think the last I heard was Stack Overflow, all the other sites combined are as large as Stack Overflow, which is not bad, actually, um, considering how big Stack Overflow is. So, mm. yeah, and that's... So it, it can be described either way. The official name of the company is Stack Overflow, though. Mm-hmm. And that's top, like, top one in the top 150 sites ever, right? I think it's top hundred. Okay. Um, okay. I, I'd have to check. It, it varies. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's up there, which is impressive. You know, I didn't, I never expected it to get that big. How do you feel? I mean, it's a big question to start off with. I know we planned this uh, a question, but we can get that. I mean, how do you feel about that? You know, was it originally just a small, did you just thought I'll just tinker with this thing? It'd be a small project and see what, see where it goes. How do you feel about it being, you know, top well, 100? There's a, there's a whole origin story where I started my blog and my blog was kind of like a research notebook. It was kind of like my love letter to computing. Like I just was really interested in programming and everything around programming. And the people I worked with, you know, they were fine programmers, but they just weren't that interested in like the history and all the other details about software development. And I really was. So the blog to me was an outlet for my sort of professional development. So I just blogged there and I tried to create a schedule of blogging every day. And after like, I want to say, gosh, two years of that, it got really, really popular to the point when I turned on RSS, finally, there were like 40,000 subscribers. I was like, wow, that's like a small city of people listening to me. Hmm. (laughs) And it made my day job seem really quaint. It's like, okay, I can go to my day job and affect like, I don't know, five, 10 people a day max, or I could write on my blog and reach a small city, you know, mm. and I was like, wow, that's, that's incredible. Um, what do I do with this energy? So I reached out to a bunch of people that I respected online. One of them was Joel Spolsky. And I said, look, you know, I have this blog, it's really popular and I want to do something with this energy and I don't know what it is. And Joel's a great idea guy. He's like, I got a great idea. He's like, there's this site experts exchange. Now it's, you have to spell it the right way because it's, it's experts dash exchange. Because if you don't do that, you get a really interesting word. Sorry, there's a cat has visiting. Uh, uh, but he's like, the, the site is great. It was like a Q&A site for programmers. But the way they did it was like used car sales, very scammy. You had to scroll to the bottom to get the answer or you, you had to sign up. It just made the whole process just really nasty and unpleasant. And Joel's idea was, well, we can do that. But like in a sustainable way where all the information belongs to the community and the programmers. And I was like, oh, I love that idea. That's a fantastic idea. And at that point I made the jump, quit my job and started on this project with um, Joel to create Stack, what would become Stack Overflow. And we iterated back and forth on what it would look like. And I researched a bunch of Q and A sites because I had knew nothing about Q and A sites before this. 
and um, in the process learned a ton. But that's that's the origin story of Stack Overflow. And when we started, you know, we didn't really know exactly what we were building. We knew that we had a couple sort of guidelines. There's like a Venn diagram. If you look at my early blog posts about Stack Overflow, there's a Venn diagram. It's like, okay, there's things about Wikipedia that really work. There's things about blogs that really work. There's things about Reddit that really, really work. And there's things about forums that really, really work. And if you took the Venn diagram of those four things and said, okay, what's the, all the elements of those things that work really well together, that was supposed to be Stack Overflow. And to our credit, I think we executed really well on that exact idea. We're like, okay, blogs, forums, uh, Wikipedia, and Reddit. Combine those four things and you get Stack Overflow, okay? Um, but we still learned a lot along the way, uh, you, know, you know, made mistakes, you know, um, and it was sort of my job to interact with the community and figure out what we were building. Cause think about who's doing the work in the system on stack overflow. You know, it's not me, it's not Joel, it's all the other programmers doing the work and it's supposed to be like fun size units of work. It's not supposed to be, oh, now I have to sit down and write a whole blog entry. Cause that's just overwhelming. Almost nobody can do that. Right? Like first. What's the topic going to be? You know, how many paragraphs do I write? How do I write paragraphs? It's a huge ask to write a blog entry, like a, like a, like a magazine article. That's an incredibly huge ask. Whereas Stack Overflow, it's like, no, no, no. Just come to us with a question, right? But a really well formatted question, a specific question that can be answered and would help other programmers. Now, parts of that are really key. You have to really think about what I just said there. It's a problem that can help other programmers that you actually know what the problem is. Like you've actually spent time figuring out what the problem is, right? Not just help me, just do my work for me. Like that's not what Stack Overflow is. And a lot of people still think it is. They're like, oh, this is free tech support. I'll just go type in, help me, please do my work for me. And people will do my work for me. And we're like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. You have to do work too, right? If you want people to reciprocate, you need to put in the effort to make a good question. And there's a whole art of asking questions and stuff. And we try to educate people about it. Like there's whole screens and interstitials we put in and uh, that's continued to evolve. But we learned a lot in that process, of course. But Q&A sites are very much their own beast. They are not forum sites um, at all. So we learned a lot in the process, but that that's sort of how we started. And that again, that Venn diagram is really critical combining you know blogs, Reddit, Wikipedia and forums. That's what Stack Overflow mm -hmm. is and was still. Mm -hmm. Okay, I do have one more question from that. Actually, I mean, do do do, do you think now the the internet generally doesn't expect enough from people? Because obviously, you're saying, look, you need to know your problem fairly. You know, the the best tech support ever is when you Google your problem and someone's typed it out to a T in a question, and then on Stack Overflow, it, it says solution you click on it you do the steps and it's like that only worked because that person you know reciprocated my a b and c problem exactly so do you feel that perhaps the internet in general now just doesn't really uh you know require that much at all? it doesn't expect anything really from the user it's like it's like i don't know you know like those old child's toys where they're just putting the block in the hole it doesn't yeah it, it doesn't require or expect anything well, I think we started with an audience that was very sophisticated, that actually understood they got it. They were like, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. But then as it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, there are two things happened. One, the audience just got so much bigger. You're bringing in people that are just like very peripherally programmers. Maybe they're just trying to figure out a problem. They're not even a programmer. 
but it's programming adjacent, which is fine. Um, but they're, they're not really up on what programming is and all the methodology and the, you know, the discipline behind it that you need. Um, so that happened. The audience got huge and wider um, over time. And then two, I don't think over time Stack Overflow did a good job of explaining, particularly at the ask a question phase, because most of the time, as you indicated, the goal is to create a Google search artifact that works for a lot of people. And when we talk about that, you're like, okay, here's my, here's a question. Oh, that's my question too. But there's not just one good answer. There's two, three, four, five good answers because there's always more than one way to do it. There's not like, oh, this is the only way. Like that's not how programming works. It's comically the opposite of that. There's like hundreds of ways of which mm. many, many are very, very bad. <laughs> it's like, I can drive a nail with my shoe if I really need to, right? But is that really the preferred way to drive a nail into a wall with your shoe? Is that really good? I mean, maybe if you're stuck and you have no other tools available, you're like, yeah, let me grab my shoe and just pound this nail on the wall. Okay, done, great, problem solved, right? Um, so the goal is to present at least four or five good solutions, but also not hundreds of solutions. One of the problems we ran into early on was questions where there were hundreds of answers. We were like, what in the hell is happening here? Because you have a question and then hundreds of possible answers. We're like, something's wrong here, right? There should be, you know, it's good to have four, five, six, maybe even 10 good answers, but hundreds, thousands? At that point, it doesn't fit. It's a discussion. It's not really a question in the sense that Stack Overflow requires, right? It's more like a discussion. It's like there's a thousand potential answers for this. Well, that's like saying, who's your favorite X-Man, right? Like, okay, cool, it's Wolverine or... I don't know, it's Jean Grey, you know, who, there's like, there's so many X-Men, right? There's no one right answer. It's a discussion. It's not really the right kind of question for Stack Overflow. So we had to figure that out because we were like, oh gosh, this doesn't fit, but why? Why doesn't this fit? And that's why, because those are discussion questions. They have too many potential answers that are all valid. Mm -hmm. So as far as doing the work goes, um, Two things, again, the audience just grew really, really large and um, <clears throat> the tooling did not keep up in terms of explaining it to people. Like, here's what we're doing, here's how we're doing it. Um, the UI didn't keep up on the ask question part because that's where people get into trouble is when they, Googling is great. I mean, if all you do is Google and end up on Stack Overflow, that's 100% win. That is totally the goal of Stack Overflow to generate really high quality Google search results. So you don't have to type a single thing in other than your question and then just immediately get the answer. That is the singular goal, 100%. Mm -hmm. So if all you ever do is Google and find Stack Overflow, we're like, wow, Stack Overflow is great. That's perfect. That's what we designed and that's working as intended, okay? Um, but as you run into uniquer problems where you can't actually find a solution and need to ask a question, that's where it gets much, much trickier. And especially over time, because think about it, when we started Stack Overflow, how many questions were on Stack Overflow? 1,000, 10,000? Now there's like, I don't know, 10 million, 20 million questions on Stack Overflow. So like coming up with a new unique question becomes pretty difficult after a certain point because most questions have been answered, right? I mean, most, you know, statistically when I say most, right? Or And then the kind that aren't might be so specific to you that they're not really useful to other people. It's like, well, why is my cat over here? Okay, answer me this. Why is my cat over here? Like, okay, that's great. But how does that help anyone else in the entire world, right? It's my cat, my room. It just doesn't matter to anyone else, right? Um, so you have this continuum of like, you know, 
utility to other people is the metric by which we judge questions. And you have to be willing as an asker to sort of sacrifice yourself and say, okay, this isn't really about me. This is about anyone who has the problem I'm about to describe, right? You have to be willing to say that. And some people aren't, they're like, no, I don't care about other people. All I care about is tell me the answer to my problem. If you don't give it to me, then I'm gonna be pissed off at you, right? Because you didn't give me the answer to my question and that's your job, right? To answer my question. So there's some education that has to go on there, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with Wikipedia. Have, have either one of you ever created a Wikipedia article? No, have you? no, no, no. How many people do you think have actually created a Wikipedia entry? I mean, statistically, it's a tiny, tiny number of people, right? And then there's a limited number of things to create Wikipedia articles about. Eventually you kind of run out, even if there's a Wikipedia article for every, you know, you know, notable and, you know, again, define notable. What, what's notability? What does it mean? You have these whole debates about that, right? So we absorbed all that tension because we said at the start, part of the Venn diagram is look, Wikipedia, that's one of our models, right? Including notability, what makes something notable, right? And I'm okay with that because I think you need that tension to build a really valuable system that works for a lot of people that creates these really powerful, useful artifacts. And when you don't have that discipline, you end up with Quora. I'm sorry to say it, <laughs> and I apologize to anyone who's a Quora fan, but yeah. Quora is an example of what happens when you don't have the right discipline around asking questions. You just end up with a bunch of basic, basically trash, you know? Like, I mean, if you wanna look up like ridiculous questions about using three weird drugs together, then, you know, Quora is your, your huckleberry, I guess, right? But it's not great for a lot of stuff. And that's why there was no discipline around, you know, standards for asking questions. What are the questions for? Who are they for? And why are we asking them? So. You know, I feel like we did a good job of setting off with the right goals, but we didn't necessarily explain it um, through the user interface as well as we should have. I like the, uh, was that a, a slightly obscure tombstone reference in that last answer? With the... Yes, <laughs> I, I love that movie. Me too. It's, you know, it's like... I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah, exactly. Good. I like seeing that woven into the vernacular. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask, uh, you mentioned standards for notability and debates about that. That's a, a core interesting question for me and for us. I'm wondering what your personal philosophy is on what makes something notable and what, what, what's your answer to that? Well, there's, there's a continuum and I have a blog entry about this. It's called inclusionists on one side where everything should have a Wikipedia entry, every object, every person, every thing on earth should have a Wikipedia entry. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is the deletionists. We're like, no, no, no. You have to be very strict notability requirements to have a Wikipedia entry. And I would say I'm more towards the deletionist side. I don't think you should have, I don't think it's really useful to have a Wikipedia entry for every single human being on earth. That's not really that useful. I mean, nothing against, I mean, every person is valuable. I'm not saying you're not valuable because you don't have a Wikipedia entry. It's just you know, you've got to have some metric for creating the system. Otherwise you end up with so much noise in the system that it's just hard to run. So um, I tend towards the deletionist side. And I also find that you create these landmines, what I call landmines. If you have too much content in the system, that's kind of just like bogus content. You end up with a lot of search landmines that people end up on these search pages that are just like bad pages, you know, like the, they're just not adding anything significant to the world. And it creates noise that you have to filter out, which Google, you know, does, but 
it's better not to have so much stuff. So I'm on the deletionist side. I'm not a pure deletionist, but I, I'm not an inclusionist. I'm, I'm further towards the deletionist side of like, there should be reasonable standards for notability just to keep the system working basically. Not because, you know, I, I don't think you deserve a Wikipedia entry. It's just, I think there have to be relatively high bars to get in the system for it to be usable and workable. Well, I really like Stack Overflow's solution in the sense that it seems like there's almost a scientific style development where the, the problems kind of fractal out into sub-questions and sub-questions, and you have to find that unique place in order to contribute. It kind of reminds me, if I understand correctly, like a dissertation process or something. Like you have to find a way to contribute something new to the field, and that's the only way in. Do I kind of have that right? I would say yes, and I empathize because as the number of questions in the system goes up, it becomes very, very difficult to find, you know, a new question that has not been asked in some form. Now, balancing that out is the fact that software development is constantly changing. Like there's whole new languages, right? Like that come out, like Rust and Go. And when we started Stack Overflow, the iPhone was very new, like app development was very new. So all those questions about, you know, how do I build apps on the iPhone? There was nothing out there, right? And I think new stuff is always coming out. And being a software developer means you're constantly learning, right? That's the job of a software developer is you're always learning. Even if you don't want to, you have to. It's by definition a job where everything changes all the time, right? There's no one standard. There's no one. There's always new models. There's always new languages. There's always new frameworks. Everything is changing constantly. So... I think that balances it out. Like there's, you know, it's hard to ask a new question because there's a huge body of knowledge on an existing topic, but then someone creates a whole new topic, right? A whole new language like Rust or Go that no one's seen before. It's like, oh, great. Now we can talk about new problems in the context of Rust, in the context of Go. Um, and new versions of Java introduce new keywords, new instructions. They deprecate old stuff. So there's still a certain amount of work around curating the stuff that's in there about what has been deprecated, what's old, what's obsolete, and what's new. So I think there's, you know, software development is, is particularly amenable to this kind of strategy because of the fact that everything's changing all the time. If it was, I don't know, the Bible, where there's like one tome of knowledge that was written in what, the, the year zero, zero, I don't even know, I'm not a religious person, um, and that is the Bible, and it shall never change, and it's always the same, and we just argue about interpretation of it, that's not a problem that we have in software development. We're coming up with whole new ways of doing things, whole new languages, whole new frameworks, um, new Bibles, if you will, right? All the time. So you don't have to sit there and have the same tired arguments about, well, the Bible says we should do this and it's been discussed for 300 years. So why do we have to discuss this again? It's like, no, 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 everything's constantly changing and that's good. Uh, and if you think about human life, like everything is always changing, that's good. I think it's a good metaphor for life. Like change is the only constant in life and how we adapt to that change and how we, how we, you know, approach that change says so much about who we are as people and how we uh, solve problems. And, and I love that space. I, I think it's tremendously exciting. And, you know, that keeps the door open for Stack Overflow to keep evolving. Uh, now I will say that they do have a big burden around a lot of existing questions are getting out of date over time. So someone has to go in and actually do the janitorial work of cleaning up the old information and marking things as obsolete, right? Um, 
we didn't have that problem in the beginning. And when I left, we didn't have that problem. But over time, you have a new problem, which is we got to keep things clean. You know, we got to keep scrubbing the old data and making sure it's up to date. So um, it, it's a field where you're constantly reinventing yourself. And I think that's why we designed it. Stack Overflow is very, very much designed for software developers, developers. But the Stack Exchange Network takes that model and says, okay, if it works for software development, it may work for other fields too, right? And it depends. It really depends on the field, okay? You can look at, go to stackexchange.com and you can say, hmm, what if you apply the Stack Overflow view of the world to subject X, where X is, I don't know, electrical engineering? That kind of works because it's technical, you know, it's adjacent, you know? What if I tried it for poker? And you're like, okay, no, poker is, it's primarily social. It's not really about the right answer. It's about having fun or like Lego. And Lego, it's like, eh, it's about sharing what you did. It's about fun. It's not about, you know, here's five correct ways to build Lego. It's like, there's an infinite ways of correct ways to build Lego. Um, so there has to kind of be a, a limited number of right answers for the system to work. And you can sort of see that play out if you're interested at stackexchange.com. You can just sort of browse all the different sites and see, well, hmm, is it working for this? Is it working for this? Is it working for this? And the company will at least it used to shut down sites uh, that weren't working. There was experiments called, there was a site called Area 51 where you'd propose, hey, what if we had Stack Overflow for X, where X is, I don't know, kites, bicycles, doesn't matter. Uh, and then we just had to see if it would work, like try it out. And some of them worked, some of them didn't. So uh, if you're curious about that, you know, scientifically, just uh, browse stackexchange.com and, and see what you think. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Mike, we get to say something? <laughs> um, well, I, I, yeah, I certainly will just to see, I mean, if there's any history of sort of catastrophic, you know, things, which, I mean, I guess any, as you say, the difference between STEM pursuits and more liberal arts pursuits is probably where the line's going to be drawn. But um, I do want to ask, Pretty you much. know, as I, as I did email you this question, I'm really interested now in the answer. Um, you know, we do have this, this opening question uh, now, now 20 minutes in, but um, <laughs> if, if you were to um, develop a boot camp or a course, the purpose of which is that those who complete the course come out at the end and they are complete clones of yourself, uh, what would the course or the boot camp uh, entail? What would it look like? Well, I'll answer the question, but first, I don't like the premise because I don't think we should be cloning anything. <laughs> I think the whole purpose of human existence is, is variety, right? Like, I don't think there should be a copy of me because that would, first of all, be infuriating. I would probably hate myself even more than I already do. Um, so I don't think you, the goal should be to clone yourself. The goal should be to communicate sort of like helpful lessons that that person can carry with them, right? So in that vein, not necessarily clone, but like the parts that I found to be working are um, a couple things. Uh, one is to have a goal that's more than just yourself. It's like, how does this make the world better, right? Like when we started Stack Overflow, it wasn't like, let's make a ton of money. Let's just go out there and just have be millionaires, right? That wasn't the goal. The goal was like, look, I love software development. I think we can learn a lot from each other. And in fact, I think the process of learning from each other is how you get better as a software developer and how you communicate and how you teach other people is how you demonstrate mastery of a topic. Okay. So that's lesson number one is like, 
you know, have a mission that, that really is about how can I make the world a little bit better for the people that come after me, right? My kids, selfishly, my children, but really everyone's children. How can we make the world better for future software developers? And even selfishly, if you think about software development, the biggest enemy to software development is bad software developers, right? So how do you fix that? How do you say, well, let's stop creating bad software developers? Well, we teach them, right? We teach each other. That's how you fix the problem of why are there so many bad software develop developers? It's like, well, they didn't have access to Stack Overflow. They had no place to go learn from each other. And now they do. They can go in and do these fun-sized units of work and say, oh, well, I, I, I also have a good answer to this question. There's five answers, but mine is also good and it's slightly different. It's, it's a slightly different approach, maybe more memory efficient, uh, might be useful in these scenarios. And you answer the question and you've given another useful answer to the question, right? You've contributed to the some knowledge of, of programming and everything on Stack Overflow is creative commons. Joel and I were very strict about this. Like any content that you put into the system, you can get back out. It's never gonna be paywalled because it's creative commons. The license guarantees that the time you spend with us at Stack Overflow, we cannot steal it from you. It goes back to the world, right? So start off with this idea that you're gonna make the world better. Now, again, it can be kind of selfish. Like I just don't wanna deal with bad software developers. I want everyone to be talented and, and, and be a good software developer. So how do you achieve that? My answer to that is Stack Overflow. That's the tool that helps people teach each other and, and creates better software developers, right? And I think, you know, I think that's been proven to be true. In fact, one of the greatest compliments I ever got was John Carmack, who the guy who created Doom and Quake had a tweet about how Stack Overflow has added billions of dollars of productivity to the world. And I was like, wow. Like, I mean, that was like a stunning moment. Like when someone you greatly admire, like one of the greatest programmers of our generation is saying, the thing you created has made billions of dollars of value. And I was like, wow. Like that's, that was a great, great feeling. That was incredible feeling. Uh, that tweet is, will be immortalized in my memory forever. That's, that's a high point for me professionally. Um, but again, because I started off with that goal, it wasn't like I will create Jeff's house of programming and become very rich. It's like, no, no, no. I want to make all this better for everyone, not just me, you know, uh, selfishly me, but also everybody else. So that's step one. And then step two is to do things in public. And what I mean by that is Joel and I would blog. We had a podcast. Um, I participated heavily on Meta Stack Overflow, which is the Stack Overflow where you talk about Stack Overflow. You know, originally I had this very fight club attitude of like, we don't talk about Stack Overflow on Stack Overflow, right? You don't talk about Stack Overflow on Stack Overflow because that's meta. Like we don't want that. That's not programming, right? But I realized later that was a huge mistake because all your governance, all the people who want to help you like maintain and manage the site, those are the people asking the questions of, hmm, how, what if Stack Overflow did this? Or what if we could, wouldn't it be better if, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, I'm failing these people. I realized like I was completely screwing up with this fight club attitude of like, don't discuss Stack Overflow. So we created Meta Stack Overflow, which is the place you go, you're on Stack Overflow and like, hmm, what if you got 10 reputation for this instead of five? Or what if no reputation? How do we make questions better? Those people go to Meta Stack Overflow and talk about it there. And that's where we would hire people from. That's where I got some amazing advice from. Now the standard rules apply, like 90% of the feedback you'll get is just not good 
for a variety of reasons, not because the people saying it are bad people or have bad advice. It's just, it's not actionable. It's not the right time. It's way too complicated. It's, you know, out of scope or whatever, but 10% of the feedback that you will get is just gold. Like it's stuff that I hadn't thought of, but I, I would see it and be like, Oh my God, that's a great idea. You know, it's little things, big things, medium things. So, you know, the, the, the second thing after having sort of, uh, a goal of like making the world better is to do things in public as much as you can, right? Blog about it, write about it, um, post about it, and create like an ongoing sort of public research journal of what you're thinking and how you're thinking about things and how we can improve things. Um, and the third step is really just to iterate. You gotta iterate pretty rapidly on that cycle, okay? You can't, <laughs> have a product that languishes for two years and doesn't really change. I mean, it's kind of like the Reddit problem where Reddit has taken, excuse me, Twitter kind of had this problem for a long time too, where it just wasn't changing as a product, right? Uh, they've gotten much, much better at it uh, to their credit. Twitter is actually, the product velocity has gotten a lot better for, for a, a decade. It was like, why is nothing changing on Twitter? Like, you know, I don't know if you remember, but like, like tweet storms, that was something that was, wasn't a feature in Twitter. It used to be limited to 140 characters and people bitched about that. They're like 280 characters. That's going to break Twitter. I was like, no, 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 this is great because 140 characters is just not quite enough. Right? Like all these things to make the product better hashtags. That was something that a Twitter user invented. Right. And then became an actual feature, right? You've got to have really good product velocity. You've got to be listening to your audience and uh, reacting and improving the product. And, and getting that feedback loop going pretty rapidly, right? The faster you can go, honestly, the better it is because we're working in software. We're not working in hardware where it takes five years. I mean, how many years, like when Steve Jobs died, what iPhone number do you think they were on internally? I'm thinking they were probably on about seven or eight, right? That's how far ahead they were planning because you're working with hardware. It's really hard to change. It takes years to make even the smallest changes. Uh, but software is so malleable that someone could propose a feature and we could have it implemented ideally in a healthy software org. Someone comes to you with the example you say you have a one word copy change, right? Unambiguously better copy, just one word, right? Oh, that's a much better word. That's much clearer. It'll improve the product. How much time does it take? to take a one word copy change from suggestion to implementation and rolling it out to all users. That time is how good you are as a software org, without a doubt, how fast you can do that. If that takes three months, you're basically dead and you don't know it yet. Uh, but if you can do it in ideally a day or a couple days, you're okay. A week, two weeks, not quite as good. Months, again, you're walking dead. You just don't know it yet. So, you know, you're in the software business. You need to behave as if you're in the software business. Things are very malleable over here. That's the huge strength of software. We can change it so fast um, and make it so much better so quickly. So I would say those, those three things are really my big pieces of advice that I would give, not a clone of myself, but someone who wanted to take the useful parts of Czech <laughs> and run with them and have their own interpretation of that, right? Don't clone me. There's enough of me, believe me, just ask my wife. There's plenty of me. There's there's arguably way too much of me already. So uh, take those and run with it and put your own spin on it is, is, is my advice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me really, and I mean, 
that the trajectory that you've you've been taking with your career and and your personal sort of passions with regards to the internet is trying to basically find value amidst potentially infinite noise right the internet is almost like the universe at this point like every day it's like it's just it just keeps growing and probably the ratio of noise to value is is unfathomable as you say you know it's like what is this wikipedia page we didn't need this we didn't need these 10,000 web pages that have been built today right they're never going to be seen they're they're just complete noise and i would you know one do you do you agree that that's really been your your focus and two how does this all sort of uh cohere into you know your current project at at discourse do you see that as in the same vein as, as that idea uh i do and i think you're right that we have so many people talking right and and just statistically if you look at the numbers like particularly once the smartphones hit and like <laughs> it's funny to think so microsoft started with the vision of what if there was a computer on every desktop right and that was a radical idea at the time wow a computer on every desktop man i'm not sure people even need computers does every desk even need a computer should be a, should there be a computer in every house is that really necessary you know there were a lot of people that said no 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 that's that's that doesn't even make sense and the funniest thing about that is it was it's it's it underestimated you know by orders of magnitude where we were going we were going to a computer on every wrist right we were going to a computer on every man, woman, and child on the planet. That's so much more than a computer on every desktop. And that was what Apple saw, right, with phones and now watches. Because where else do you go? Everything just gets smaller, right? You went from mini computers, which filled the, like this whole room, to a computer like that one, which could fit on a desk, and then to a laptop, and now to, you know, a smartphone, right? And now this, this is where we're going. Because there's nowhere to go but down. Everything gets smaller and smaller and smaller because there's nowhere else to go. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, you have screen issues, but I think eventually projection is going to fix that. My theory, personal theory, is that everything is going to be projected. Uh, projectors will be built into phones, into watches. You'll project onto any surface. That's my current theory of where things are going, for better or worse. Um, but, yeah, so a side effect of that is... Now you have every man, woman, and child on earth talking on the internet. So that's producing content, right? An infinite amount of content. And you see TikTok, for example. What if you let everyone have their own show? Well, that's TikTok. Everyone on the planet has their own TV show. We have that now. That exists. That's a thing. But who's going to watch it all? And who's going to decide what's worth watching? And why, right? And... That, those are the very, very interesting questions about curation of like what information is worth watching and, and how do I find it, right? The, the algorithm, right? People complain about this. What's the algorithm? You know, how are things surfaced? And that's everything because you have so much content. So Stack Overflow is one manifestation of the algorithm of like uh, what kind of content, very tightly scoped to programmers, tightly scoped to is this a problem that benefits not just me, but other programmers? Is it a reproducible problem that I can explain in ways that make sense that help other people than just me? So you can see we've already put all these boundaries around the content. And yeah, I totally believe in that. And it segues nicely into discourse, which is essentially the sequel to Stack Overflow. If you like Stack Overflow, I encourage you to take a look at discourse because it really is, at least from 
the way that I built it and the way I think of things, it is the sequel to Stack Overflow. Now it's it's attacking a slightly different problem, uh, but it's very adjacent to Stack Overflow. It's Stack Overflow is a system of saying no. Okay, it's like no, you can't just post. What's the funniest thing I just saw in my code? <laughs> you can't just hang out and talk about you know what's what's cool in programming today, right? But with discourse, you can. Discourse is um, much more like forum software. It's structured discussion, uh, but it's not strict. It could be about whatever you want it to be, right? And you set the rules. Uh, Stack Overflow has a built-in set of rules. I explained Stack Overflow is like, it's a scalpel. It's a very, very sharp instrument that's very good in the hands of a professional, right? But if you give a scalpel to someone who has no medical training, they're probably gonna hurt themselves, right? Because it's not a tool that's meant for the average person. Whereas discourse is more like a table knife. You could use it to open a box. You could use it to screw in a screw if you have nothing else available, right? You could use it to eat your dinner, right? You can use it to defend yourself if you had to. It has all these, it's a. It's like a Swiss army knife, right? It's, it's useful in a variety of different situations. You get to decide what that table knife is good for. And there's some adaptations you can make to the table knife to make it good at certain things. You know, you can modify it in various ways. So discourse is the much more open-ended version of Stack Overflow. It does do Q&A. In fact, there's a plugin that makes it not exactly like Stack Overflow, but you know, there's questions, there's answers, that sort of thing, and ranking of answers, all that stuff. Um, you can turn it into Stack Overflow if you want to, but it's so much more than that. It's about people socializing and trying to find value in that socialization, right? And also, and this is really important, it does not degenerate into the howling of wolves, right? Because so much online, you know, communication, or as we call it, discourse, devolves into people just screaming at each other, right? And I'm like, I've had 30 years of people screaming at each other. I'm done with that. Like, I, I understand people have strong feelings. You know, they're fine to have those strong feelings, but screaming at people doesn't doesn't change anyone's mind. It doesn't advance the dialogue, right? Like you don't learn anything from people screaming at each other. You just don't. So discourse tries to urge you to be the best version of yourself online via these just-in-time nudges of, hey, it's okay to come in here. Like I'll give you an example. When you first start typing in discourse, not when you sign up, but the minute you start typing your first response, a little box pops up and it says, hey, thank you. It, you know, thank you for contributing to the discussion. But bear in mind a couple of things. First of all, let's be kind to each other because that's the only way things work, really. I mean, you can yell, but it's not really going to work. Uh, second, uh, let's argue about the ideas, not the person, right? Just because you have an idea, I don't only doesn't mean you're a bad person. I mean, you might be, I don't know, but... You're, the idea is not you. You're not the idea. The idea is something that's independent of you. I can criticize the idea without criticizing you, the person. These are two different concepts, right? And the third thing is, does this add to the discussion? Are we learning from this? Is what you're giving us going to help us learn more about the nuances of what we're discussing, right? I'm not talking about, am I right? Am I wrong? Just there's a lot of nuance to most topics that are complicated, right? So help us understand that nuance, right? Advance the discussion, right? Teach us something. 
Um, and discourse has all these nudges built in throughout the system to try to keep people in that mindset of, am I being my best self online? Or am I just really pissed off at this person for having a different opinion than me, right? You know, it's a valid feeling, but it's not necessarily gonna advance the discussion and nobody's gonna learn from that. So discourse is the sequel to Stack Overflow. And it's also fully open source, which is great because you don't have to pay me to use it. You can grab discourse and do whatever you want with it. And you don't have to pay me a dime and you don't have to answer to me personally. Now you do have to live with some of the design decisions that we make in discourse, but um, those decisions were all about someone who, at least someone who thinks they know what they're doing, about having a really good discussion. And by good, I mean one where you learn things, you come away with more nuance. You don't necessarily come away with your mind changed because, again, nobody really changes their mind, in my opinion, based on online discussion. But they can come away thinking, hmm, I hadn't actually considered what you're telling me. Right, that actually is something I hadn't thought of. I realized that I had a, a, my model of this was too simple, you know. And you've convinced me that this is something I should think about. That's the goal, and I think you can really achieve that with this course, uh, as well as just you know having a cool place to hang out and chat or whatever. Right, um, it's all those things. So, yeah, if you like Stack Overflow, I really urge you to look at Discourse. I love feedback on Discourse. I live in Discourse. <laughs> Uh, discourse is how we run the business discourse. We have our own internal discourse and we discuss everything there, including how we run the company, why we do the things we do, some of the decisions we make. It's all in public, right? Because that's, again, one of my philosophies is like, do as much as you can in public. Not everything. Like, I'm not going to have sex in public. Sorry, in case anyone is into that for some reason. Not going to happen. Uh, but as much as you can, I think there's value in, in doing stuff in public so you can get feedback on it. It's like, hmm, I hadn't thought of that. Or, oh, wow, that's a great idea. Or, geez, I had totally the wrong idea about this. Or I wasn't actually listening, you know? You can learn so much from that. And that's really where I'm coming from with discourse. And, and I love feedback. So, yeah, please, if you like Stack Overflow, look at discourse, please. I think that's really cool. I'm hearing a lot of ways that you've built your ideas about what a good conversation entails into software, almost so that your your philosophy scales, or that just by using your tools, people kind of hear your argument of what a good conversation consists of, what good discussion consists of. And I really like that kind of approach of like, if, if you have a particular worldview or a particular insight that you can build into something that people use, then you don't have to give a bunch of lectures and bore people and write academic papers. You can kind of build it into society and change its, I've been calling it assumption engineering. You can change the underlying assumptions about how things should go based on what they use. And I just think it's really cool how directly you've done that, both with Stack Overflow and with this course. Well, thank you. And, and I think that's right. It's like, I'm a tool builder. I'm not really, you know, a person who's going to, write a bunch of monologues. I mean, I have some in my blog about like, why did I do things I did? But really it's about the tooling. It's about build the tool that represents your view of the world. And realize also, I'm not saying discourse is the perfect tool. I'm saying it is a type of tool that I think is very flexible and can work in a lot of different scenarios, unlike Stack Overflow, which is a, again, a scalpel. It's a very high powered school that, a tool that takes a lot of skill to use. 
Um, it's a more general purpose tool, but I'm not saying this is the only tool in the toolbox by no means. Um, just like Stack Overflow should not be your only source of education and programming. That is dangerous. And one of the things I built into Stack Overflow is what we call the reputation cap. You can earn reputation in Stack Overflow from other programmers upvoting your content, right? Like, oh, that's a good answer. That's a great answer. That's a great question. That increases your reputation. Well, one thing we saw early on is people got so addicted to Stack Overflow that they would be on it all day. And I'm like, that's not the purpose of Stack Overflow. You're supposed to be a practicing programmer. So we put in a cap of like, look, you can't, you can only get this much reputation every day. And then that's it. And then the whole point of that is to say, hey, go do other things, go write actual code, go do, go read, go, you know, be a part of a user group, go do user research, go do things, you know, don't just play the Stack Overflow game all day long. That's not the purpose of what we're doing here. So there should be multiple tools. Stack Overflow and Discourse should not be the only tools. Just like I would say, there should not be one Facebook that rules the entire earth because that's insane, you know? And I'm glad. One of the things I like about Web3, there's a bunch of stuff in Web3 that I think is not good, but there's two things that I think are very good in Web3. One is the idea that, hey, maybe one giant Facebook isn't great for humanity. <laughs> uh, and maybe there should be more sites than just Facebook, right? Like the classic internet where there's lots and lots of sites. That's what I'm a fan of. Diversity, if you will. And it's okay for Facebook to exist. I'm not saying Facebook should stop existing, but the idea of Facebook taking over the world is a really dangerous one. And I'm glad people are waking up to that and seeing with what they're, oh, decentralization. Hey, maybe we can have more than this, right? Yes, and. That's great. The other thing I like about Web3 is the idea of people getting paid for their work, right? Like all these artists who aren't making any money or writers, they have a way to make money now that's very direct and very straightforward. Um, now, the how of how you do that is critical. There's a lot of very nuanced <laughs> questions that you have to answer about how that works exactly. But those two things, decentralization and people getting a fair payment for their creative work, I think are incredible. And, and I fully embrace that. And discourse itself is highly decentralized, right? Like, you know, there's supposed to be lots of discourse instances and they all kind of work together, right? Um, in a loosely confederated way, that's the goal. So I'm very happy to embrace those aspects of Web3 and I'm very happy to see people waking up to those specific aspects of Web3, I think are really useful to us and harken back to the earlier days of the internet, you know, that diversity we had before everything became, oh, it's all Google, it's all Facebook, it's all Apple. There, now you're done. You've got three websites, that's all you need. Or like in China, apparently, what is it, like WeChat? Like that one app that everybody uses and everything goes into one app. And I'm like, this isn't healthy. You no, know, you want diversity in the choice of these kind of things. So, yeah. I also like the way Web3 kind of could resolve the tension between diversity and just having broken network effects because doing things in kind of a protocol style way allows people to interface with it in a bunch of different manners. You can have lots of different front ends, lots of different Facebook type interactions without having to be separate communities that have no contact with one another. Like if I post something on Facebook, my Twitter followers won't see it. 
I mean, I could do a Zapier integration or something like that, but the communities are basically separate, separated by the platforms. And what I'm hoping Web3 enables us to do is benefit from both the diversity and having everyone kind of technically in one place. Does that make sense? Just maybe not all living under the same rules or interacting under the same rules? It does. It, it makes total sense. And I think the how is really critical here. And I think that's what's uh, very nuanced about Web3 is uh, the philosophy is important, but you know how you do it also matters a lot. And some of these problems they're attacking, like decentralization is a very, very difficult problem. It's not easy. It's much more easy to have a centralized service. And I think people really underestimate the difficulty of this problem that they're taking on and how long it's going to take to resolve some of the stuff. But at the same time, the sooner we start, the sooner we can figure this out. My classic example is if you look back at Xanadu, uh, Ted Nelson's thing. I mean, he's been working on that for 30, 40 years, and it's still not really there. So that's the scale of problem we're looking at here with decentralization. It's very, very difficult. There's a reason that centralization won, because it's a lot easier and it's a lot simpler. So just you know, go in with eyes open. You're taking on a very, very hairy technical problem. But at the same time, that thing you mentioned of having a variety of different sources, I've heard people complain about, remember the days of RSS readers and Google Reader? They have all these fond memories of you know, subscribing to RSS feeds by hand. And I don't necessarily think, I think they have rose tinted glasses about some of this stuff, but the general idea of, you know, what if everything had an RSS feed and then we just pick and choose is sound, right? They're getting back to that core ideal of let's have general methods of interchanging information that we can use like Lego bricks and put them together and build what we want. So I think that's a really good direction to look in. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think so. And there are a lot of pitfalls in Web3 places where it seems like we could be setting setting ourselves up for big, big problems in the future. Um, you mentioned, you know, that's, that's why centralization won, because it's easier. I also wanted to point out that it obeys your, your third, third recommendation of iterating quickly. That if the time, if the, your, the success of your centralized software services, how quickly you can make a copy change, well, centralization is going to win hands down because decentralization kind of by right. design is slow to iterate. And so the, the, the relationship to development seems totally different. It seems like it's a much more philosophical process because the holes, the gaps in your, in, in your philosophy are going to become gaping caverns as more and more things come to depend on it. And these are things that, you know, like, like Xanadu take a while to work out and it is, you know, there's, there's, there's big potential pitfalls coming from misapplications of web three or over putting too much confidence in, in shady, poor applications of it. I'm wondering if you have any specific recommendations uh, for Web3 as an industry or any particular products or approaches or trends that you're seeing? Like, how how would you do crypto better or how would you do it, period? Well, a, a couple things there. One is, I think money is just a risky thing to add to any community because money really does ruin a lot of stuff because 
the minute it becomes a gold rush, the minute it becomes a get rich quick scheme, then you attract all these people that are just really not the kind of people you want on a project because they're in there for the wrong reasons. They're in there basically for personal gain. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be rich or wanting to make money, but it's not, it's difficult to, to get to where you need to get to with a bunch of people that are only focused on how can I make myself rich? Um, I think, I believe strongly that if you build something great, you will get rich. And that's the better way to think about it. Um, so I worry a little bit about sort of over-application of sort of money as the solution to all problems. Like everything should be a term sheet. Everything should be a monetary transaction. That's a little bit risky and you got to think about that. And as far as um, learning about crypto and learning about Web3, honestly, challenge number one, just try to buy something with crypto. Just, just do that because I was stunned at like just how much of a pain in the ass it was to like get crypto, buy something with it. Oh my God. The user experience of, of using crypto is just, I mean, I guess there's some mobile apps that make it a little easier now. Like I think there's Venmo and stuff have dabbled in and stuff, but in general, it's, it's not a good user experience. And there's a lot of stuff that needs to be ironed out around just the fundamentals of, of making this stuff simple and understandable. So if you want to dip your toes in, just go try to buy something with crypto. Just have that as a goal. Pick some arbitrary thing and buy it with crypto and then see how that feels, right? How did that work? How did that go for you? Um, and that gives you some basic experience with both crypto and also like the market, you know? Um, now, crypto, unfortunately, has become also very speculative. It's, it's more like you don't really use it to buy things because it's so volatile you know, you could buy something and then the value would drop the next day by half or whatever. So I don't even know if crypto is useful as a way to buy things. Maybe it's only useful as like, you know, fantasy football for finance nerds, right? Like it's like, oh, here's my, here's my, here's my roster. And I pick a roster. This is my quarterback. This is my wide receiver, you know, and they're all just cryptocurrencies and you're just building a portfolio and then just essentially gambling. Now, there's nothing wrong with gambling. I don't actually have a problem with gambling. I think gambling is is fun, but you got to be honest with yourself about what you're actually doing. Are you actually gambling? Are you actually, you know, investing? I think people really want to think they're investing when they're really gambling. Um, and that's okay. Just don't, you know, lie to yourself about what it is that you're actually doing. Um, yeah. So So think about that and just try to buy something with uh, crypto. Um, I have an incoming cat here, sorry, trying to. <laughs> cats are always welcome. The cats are kind of a novelty. They, they, uh, my old house, my office was in an outbuilding, so the cats never got to see me. So it's like a huge novelty for them to see me. And yeah, so. No, I'm, I'm definitely cats. a cat person. And uh, I, I wanna share this thought very selfishly here, that someone pointed out that cats domesticated themselves basically. Like they didn't, they don't have a relationship with humans like dogs, like they were wolves and we learned to kind of work with them to hunt maybe or something. And then we bred them into these tiny little quivering creatures and now they depend on us for food. But that, that was like humans did that. But cats have been about the same. And I can just imagine like a dog is a creature that woke up 120th the proper size one day and had to depend on humans. <laughs> but cats were just like, yeah. 
I got an idea. Let's let's have him take care of us. And I just I just <laughs> I find that really amusing. It makes me wonder if cats are aliens. But that that's my weird digression of the day. Yeah, yeah. No, I love both. I think cats and dogs are just fantastic animals for for various reasons. Um, I'm a fan of uh, these animals, and I think we're lucky to have them. You know, they give so much to us. So oh, yeah, uh, I love animals. Mm. I just want to yeah jump. So jumping back, but bringing a lot of things um, together. The other question uh, that, that that we sent across to you, obviously, that's so this this sort of overarching question that all sides here are looking towards, which is like how how what that basically what the hell do we do with the noise? And this this goes to our other question, which is you know we're working with ideas at Idea Market to create this market function to say, look, there's a lot going on online. Here's a function that allows you to find what's attention worthy. Um, so, that, you know, our question to you as someone who's also talking about ideas in discourse saying, look, let's talk about the ideas. Stop the ad hominem. Stop the, you know, quote unquote debates, which people go on about. Have you seen that debate? Every time someone sends me a debate, I'm, I've lost an hour of my life to two people who after five minutes are just bickering with one another. And it's like, okay, we've got nowhere, right? Um, so, you know, what is something, what is an idea uh, it doesn't have to be specific to the internet, I guess. What is one idea that you're long on? You know, you think, yeah, this is this is going to be really big. One that you're short on, and one you think this is being really under underappreciated. Okay, so I, the long and short, I have pretty easy answers for. So the one I'm long on is essentially the web. There was this idea for a while that like the web would. There's this one. I'm not going to say who it is. It's this one venture capitalist who's just very uncool in my opinion, but he said, no one will be using the web soon. He said this in like 2013. He's like, no one will be using the web soon. And I'm like, no, <laughs> the web is going to survive apps. Like apps I think are actually going to start declining in favor of web. And I think that's actually what we've seen happen is a lot of, apps for phones are really just repackaged websites for a variety of reasons. One, because it's a lot easier to develop a website and then it works on all the different platforms. You don't have to have an Android team, an iOS team writing in totally different code bases. And then you have to keep your web team, your Android team, and your iPhone team all have to be in sync building the same app. This is not a good process, right? Um, and I think for a lot of companies, they've realized, hey, we can just build the web and then just deliver the web package to the different devices. And that is, I think, what we've seen happen. And that's what I predicted would happen, where I had Atwood's second law, which is that everything will be written in JavaScript, right? Like everything that can be written in JavaScript will be written in JavaScript. I said that in like, I think 2007, and that has more or less come true and continues to come true. So I'm long on web, I'm long on JavaScript, I'm long on the browser. I think those are, they're gonna win because Honestly, they're the path of least resistance, and that's the path that always wins. Building a binary app for a specific device is not the path of least. That's the path, path of much resistance. Um, that's one idea I'm very long on. An idea I'm short on is VR. I think VR is, in its current state, complete horseshit. It's not good. It's not useful. It's basically 3D television. It's 
I don't know why people were so ridiculously enthused about it when it's clearly just so technologically limited until we can actually project images on the eye. I'm talking like physics, man. I don't know if you've seen, there's a Black Mirror episode. I forget the name of it. I think it's the, the complete memory of you or something. Anyway, in that episode, they have these eye things where everything is recorded all the time through their eyes, right? And they can play it back at will, right? That That's coming. We don't quite have the tech for it, but that's definitely coming. Um, and all the repercussions of that, that's the kind of thing you need for VR to be good. You need to be able to project actually on the eye and into the brain, not strapping smartphones to your face. It's just so lame. I mean, I find it comically lame, to be honest with you. Even if it's a 4K display, it's like, okay, you just, all you've done is strap displays to your face. You haven't actually done the physics and invented the technology to get these images in our brain the right way. You've just moved the screens. Okay, instead of a screen here, you have screens here. Great. Fantastic. Brilliant. You're, you're, you're all geniuses. Whatever. Give Palmer Lucky a billion dollars or whatever and tell him to go fuck off, honestly, because it's just not that good. And it won't be until you can project things into the mind. Wake me up when that happens. So I'm short on VR. Uh, now, augmented reality is a little bit better because you're not saying as much. You're just saying, look, I'm going to hold the screen up and it's going to project things. That's a little more tenable. So AR, I'm lukewarm on. VR, I'm very cold on. Um, and then I'll have to think a little bit more about an idea that's kind of underrated. Um, I made it a little bit more time for that one. Uh, I might say one thing that's underrated is sort of um, comments on the internet. You know, that whole don't read the comments thing. Like, it is true because you're generating so many comments. Like, take an average Twitch stream where you have, okay, you have on the left side the Twitch stream and then the right side the comments, right? It's just a stream of just who even reads all this, right? Like, what what purpose does this serve? Like, a bunch of people just typing, 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 and then you have a person streaming, and it's like, what is this for? What does this do? What purpose does this serve? Um, I do think there is value in comments on the internet. I think curating them becomes tricky, but places that curate comments on their articles actually have really interesting comments on their articles. Um, and I think that's actually underrated. It does take work, either human or algorithmic, to sort of filter sort of the most interesting comments out. So you're seeing just the, the the signal and not the noise. But I do believe that for any given topic, processing feedback in real-time form has a lot of value if you can dig out the 10% that are actually good and the 1% that are actually amazing from that. Because um, you have this sort of million monkeys typing problem, right? Of like, everybody can type on the internet now, therefore everybody is typing on the internet. So how do you tell the useful typing from the noise typing, right? So I do think that's a little underestimated in terms of the value you can get out of that if you can actually filter um, this sort of live stream of comments into the most useful stuff. Um, you end up with better articles, you end up with more interesting articles, you end up with deeper insights, uh, those sorts of things. So the idea that you just have to trash can comments because it's a wasteland, comments are dead. Uh, you know, statistically, yes, but you're also throwing out some gold. 
you're basically panning for gold, right? You're panning for gold. So what you're saying is there is no gold. It's like, I don't believe that. There's always gold, right? It's just a question of how you pan for it and where you pan for it, right? And or am I going to get rich, right? Probably not, right? But still, it's worthwhile to pan for gold <laughs> sometimes, depending on how you do it. So that's what I got. Who does comments really well? Uh, some newspapers do it well, where they curate, um, and they'll only show sort of the best comments. I've seen some newspapers do it really well. Ars Technica does it really well. Ars Technica has a long-established forum, which I would love for them to switch to discourse, by the way. I don't know if they will. They're entrenched, but um, they do it really well. Um, so, yeah, those are some examples off the top of my head. There's not a ton. A lot of people have just given up completely on comments and I don't blame them. It's work. Like you got to figure it out. Like either algorithms figure it out or you figure it out. It's, it's a lot easier to say, you know what? No comments. Just keep your comments to yourself or go to Reddit and, you know, do whatever you're going to do there. And mm -hmm. then it's Reddit's problem and not our problem. Right. E so, yeah. Even on know. a very, very small scale, it's rarely worth the, especially if you don't have a team, you know, just as someone who's had blogs, which, you know, get a fair amount of views but even on that scale of a single person blog it's like you know what you know for, the, for it's to almost like 10 or 20 to 1 where you go oh that comment was amazing i actually can have a discussion with you and then the next comment is this post is bad and you're like yeah okay thanks you know it's fine but you, yeah you, nothing has happened <laughs> here at all you know you've you've you i always like the the to think about internet discussions as people not realizing they're still in the real world in some sense, right? Like people who comment on videos that people might have put tons of effort into or blog posts that people have clearly put tons of effort into as the equivalent of like, if they were to, to write a comment on a, you know, like a, a 30 minute talk on YouTube, which someone has clearly put tons of effort into and they just write, they comment like, this is really shit, right? It's like, you can only do that because you're on this medium. Like it's really done something to your mind. Because if you go to a theater and someone's like, in the middle of a talk and they stop talking and you just go, yeah, this is really shit like that. Then you realize what you're actually doing in real life. Right. But, <laughs> but something about the internet right. is a huge remove where they suddenly just feel like they can just do it. Right. No consequences on the internet at all. Apparently. <laughs> well, right. And I think part of it is people, you know, learning, you know, we've brought in all these people with smartphones that weren't really on the internet. The internet was a very elite place. Like it was a very self-selected audience of, you know, fairly sophisticated users. Not that some of them weren't crazy because believe me, many of them were <laughs> crazy. But when you open it up to everyone, when the smartphones really hit and when did smartphones really hit? So I figure 2014 was when smartphones started to get like really good. And then maybe 2018 when they started to get cheap enough that kind of everyone had one. So it took a while. It wasn't like we invented the iPhone in, what was it, 2008, and then everybody has a smartphone. It doesn't work like that. It took uh, a good 10 years for the tech to get cheap enough and, and good enough and prevalent enough for everyone to be online all the time. And by that, I mean they're, they're constantly carrying, you know, this, as Jerry Seinfeld calls it, the hard rectangle in your pocket, right? That's what you got because that's what you're issued at birth and everybody carries one around until they die, right? That's, we're all carrying around these hard rectangles in our pockets and deciding who's worthy of our time and interactions, right? Um, 
so yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of content being generated, but I do think I'll give you an example. Twitter has done sentiment analysis because I've seen it happen where they've started to filter out some of the more obvious bad responses like this is shit, your shit. Like those don't make it through to Twitter anymore. Not really, because I've noticed on my, I have like 280,000 followers and I've noticed a lot of the replies, there'll be a, some, some responses were hit. And if you expand that, it's usually because they used a naughty word. Now, whether they said you're shit or yeah, that's really shitty, um, doesn't matter because it's not sophisticated enough to tell, but it's filtering some of the more obvious like danger words out. And I think that's great. And that's a step in the right direction. Just like, as you said, people have to understand that like, it's as if you stood up in a crowded theater in the middle of a show and said, I think this whole show is shit. It's like, who would do that? That's just such an asshole thing to do. Nobody, very few people would do that, right? But online, you know, metaphorically, you're standing up and saying, this is shit. Um, and they don't think about it. But I think people are starting to realize that online communication, when you stand up and do that, has consequences. Like you'll get filtered out. If you do that, you're going to be filtered. I'm not going to see your reply. So that's a type of consequence that's starting to come around. And it's just basic sentiment analysis. It's not even that sophisticated because it catches a lot of like responses that weren't actually rude responses. It's just, they used a, you know, a danger word. So yeah, I agree. The, uh, the content creation to ease of consumption ratio is so weird. Uh, like if, if you binge watch a bunch of shows on Netflix in a single day, you could consume like what a hundred million or $500 million worth of production. And you can just sit there and go, this is shit. Like it's kind of an absurd power ratio in a certain way. And it's interesting that you mentioned that the, the pendulum is kind of swinging back the other direction on that, that, um, the algorithmic sentiment analysis and, and curation and spaces that people are gravitating toward are kind of changing people's instincts about that, hopefully, or at least changing the, you know, the ability for that stuff to, um, you know, gain any, gain any traction. Um, I'm well, I also think stuff like stuff like deplatforming, I think is significant because the idea that, again, there are consequences. For a long time on Twitter, you could say anything, and there were just no consequences. You could say the most horrible, just vicious, terrible things to people, and there are no consequences because, you know, free speech. You know, like, yeah, you can just say whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But it kind of does matter because nobody really likes to hear someone tell them that they totally suck and they're, you know, shouldn't have been born. I mean, there are some things that really the platforms should have been more responsible for. And I think they're waking up to that and they're starting to do it because it hurts engagement. I mean, go back to first principles. Are you going to sign up to a platform where a bunch of people are going to go up? Oh, you suck. You should never have been born. You're an idiot. Are you going to hang out on that platform? Are you going to spend time on that platform? People. Yeah. So people are waking up because there have been enforcement of some of the norms. And I think there should be, you know, I'm not saying, you know, you know, again, the government view of like, what is free speech is, you know, it's about speaking about governmental stuff. It's not whether I insult another person, that's not free speech. Free speech is criticizing the government, right? About policies and stuff. 
And it's amazing that it's taken that simple lesson. It's taken so much time for people to absorb, right? You don't have the right to free speech, meaning I can just say anything to anyone with no consequences. Fuck no. There's consequences in life, my friend, right? You cannot say whatever you like to me with no consequences. There will be consequences uh, of some kind. So think about that before you say things. And just like you would in real life, if you're walking down the street and you see a guy who's like, your head is stupid. Like, why would you do that? Like, even if it's true, just, is that necessary? Does that make anyone's life better? You know? Anyway, so it's good to see people waking up. It's good to see enforcement. It's good to see just some basic norms of like, let's behave like responsible adults. You know, I mean, is that such a big ask? Really? Oh, it's such a big, it's such a big ask. And, you know, I could go down a, you know, a rabbit hole on this, but you know, one of my favorite psychologists, Wilhelm Reich, student of Freud for a while and came up with some really radical, interesting stuff, uh, estimated that about 2% of people are like actual adults in like the psychological sense. And this was in the <laughs> 1940s. This was before the yeah. 70 years of advertising and, and stuff that we've endured since then. Um, so it seems like what you would, that the norm is very different from what an expert would call psychologically healthy. Like what health is and what the norm is are very divergent. And maybe that's just a Western thing because where the money is, there the demons go to fight over the money and just, you know, extract it. Like it's almost like a farming sort of relationship um, that, uh, that, that we kind of experience in America and in the West. So I, I, I'm inclined to look upon the public as primarily victims because they're born into a world where their main purpose is to be extracted from and manipulated. And, and that sucks and it stunts growth and health and all these things. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think can we expect each other to be adults is a really big ask. And I, I, I'm glad that you're building things that make it more natural and make it more automatic. Um, building environments that build the assumptions of adulthood into the use of the tools rather than having that be uh, an exception like they are on, on on various platforms today. So. I think that's really cool. I think that's about as much as one can do about that problem in th- at this at this time. Um, so. Well, I have another example. I saw somebody tweet about this, and they wanted to post a tweet that said uh, "fuck NFTs," right? And when they did that, Twitter popped up a warning. It's like, well, you know, most users on Twitter don't talk like this. Are you sure you want to post this? And it wasn't even like you can't do this. It was just like, hey. You know, fuck NFTs is, and they were, of course, pissed off because they wanted to say fuck NFTs. And, you know, it's not too bad in the big scheme of things. But at the same time, I was like, well, you know, that's the tool. You can ignore the warning and post fuck NFTs if you feel really strongly about it. I don't feel that strongly about it. I think NFTs have issues, but I think the idea of owning a JPEG is not, is okay. Like, I, I think that's okay. It's, it's. I mean, we own all kinds of other stuff. You could own a JPEG in some sense. That's fine. I don't view it as like this horrible environmental disaster or something that never should never happen. On the other hand, like I don't want to, I'm not going to go buying a bunch of JPEGs because I don't really, it's not me, but like I, I get where you're coming from. If you're an artist that produces art, having people buy your art as NFTs is 
it's a way to support your time. Yeah, that's cool. Let's try this and see if it works. You know, like, I don't know. Um, but that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Like it's a double-edged sword of like saying fuck NFTs is now gets a warning. Whereas for it would just gone through seamlessly. You could say fuck insert word here and it would have been fine. You could say literally anything and nothing is enforced. I'm like, well, you know, it's like, you know, it's like the crossing sign. It's like, you can ignore it. If, if the crossing sign says don't cross, but there's no traffic, then cross, right? You're an adult you know, cross. It's jaywalking technically, but there's no traffic. You're not going to get hurt. The point is, you know, there might be traffic. You might get killed or fucking NFTs. You might be saying, fuck something, you know, that you really shouldn't say here. I don't, I don't want to say anything weird. Um, but you see where I'm going with this, right? That's, it's a double-edged sword. And I personally am fine with the trade-offs and I would much rather have this kind of moderation than nothing, which is what we had before. So, you know, I think it's all a step in the right direction. And I'm happy for discourse to be a part of that, those kinds of nudges. Um, we have a, a system called watched words where based on the presence of a certain word in a post, you can do all these different actions. You can automatically flag it. You could block it. You could put it in an approval queue. You could censor it, replace it with like black Unicode squares, um, all kinds of stuff. You could replace it with a different word. It's a very, very flexible system, right? And what it means is up to you. You know, what words are, you know, dangerous words in your community? Because there certainly are some where when you see a certain word, the odds of the post being a bad one are very, very high, in my opinion, right? Like there's certain terms that like, once that term's in a post, it's going to be downhill very, very rapidly, in my opinion, almost all the time. So, you know, that's why those kind of tools exist. And I think that's a good thing. So it's progress. Yeah, that makes sense. And I like the metaphor you used earlier about what's technically jaywalking. And I think that that's a great illustration of the range of solutions you can have to this, because it seems like there's kind of two poles or two directions. You can go in a direction where everything is prescribed and everyone follows the rules and then turns their own brain off. I do what the lights say. Like that's safe and organized and regulated in a way but it's like stultifying also. And it shuts out whatever is like alive in people. And I think about this an disproportionate amount of time because the way people cross the street is the main, like one of the things that really touched me about my time I spent in Beijing a few years ago, that they don't really have such a, an automation governed society. And when you're crossing the street in Beijing, uh, you're dealing with, you know, skateboards and scooters and Vespas and donkey carts and little, <laughs> little like Flintstone vehicles and cars and trucks with, you know, things piled 20 feet high. Like it's a real jungle and it's not managed by automation the way Western street intersections are. So everyone has to pay attention. And I loved that. I loved the fact that it was very, you know, go with the flow and it was chaotic, but at least I knew everyone was paying attention. So if I did something weird, it would probably be okay. If you do something weird and like run a red light, you could get killed. But if you do something weird in a crowd where everyone is watching out for themselves because it's their life on the line too, it has its own kind of advantages. And I found it very organic and, and refreshing in the way that the West doesn't seem to have as much of a, of a connection to. 
So I like I like that you use that specific metaphor, and I'm I'm thinking now of of ways that that appears in software. Yeah, I, I think software, particularly with this course and with Stack Overflow, there's a lot of nudges in the software to try to achieve certain kinds of behavior, but not absolutes. Like we're they're nudges. You can still deviate if you really know what you're doing or you really want to but you're kind of being nudged to go down a certain path uh, because we want you to, it's what's called falling into the pit of success. In other words, these are just patterns that we know to work, right? Um, but they're also sort of like guidelines, right? They're not restrictions that you can't do. Now, if, if enough weird things happen with your account, you might get pushed into a mode where you are getting enforced because we've seen a lot of negative behaviors or negative responses to what you're doing and the sandbox closes in also with new users there's a lot more sandboxing because we don't trust you yet you have to spend time building that trust and you don't have all the abilities that someone who spent like you know three weeks on the site reading it every day would have uh, you can read about it in discourse it's called the trust system and it's based on the way we work as people like if i've just met someone you're a stranger. I, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't, may not let you in my house. I might just keep you on the front porch while we talk for a little while and figure out if I want to let you in, right? And then when you come in, well, it's the first time you've been to my house. I've, I don't really know you let, so we're just going to stay in this one area. But then as I get to know you, maybe you'll come over more often. Maybe we'll hang out and have movie nights. Maybe I'll come over to your house, right? There's all these analogs to how we do relationships in the real world of it takes time. And certain amount of patterns of activity that are recognized as like, okay, you know, you made five posts and they all got upvotes. That's a good sign, right? Like the community has sort of embraced you at some level. Whereas if you create five posts and they're all flagged, <laughs> then that's a problem. And we probably don't want you back. So, you know, it's based on observed behavior and uh, the guidelines and the rules. And I love stuff like that. And I think that's the role of software is to do that. And where you get in trouble and where Facebook and other platforms got into trouble is they only optimized for one metric, which was engagement. And you touched on this earlier, but I want to cover it. And the real problem with this, and this term is from like 1880. It's like a, I think a Philip Randolph Hearst, uh, the Hearst uh, guy said this, yeah. if it bleeds, it leads, yeah. which is the idea that news is all about shocking people, right? And, and getting them angry and getting them riled up and getting them engaged. The best way to engage someone is to pick a fight with them. Basically, that is the highest level of engagement that you're gonna get. You get up in someone's face and get them to a point where they're yelling. That's engagement. That's the highest form of engagement. And on the advertisement side, what's the highest form of engagement? It's basically sex, right? So every ad, I mean, Idiocracy did this, right? Like in Idi Idiocracy, all, this, all the shops were basically sex shops, because that's the highest form of advertising engagement, right? That was the joke, is if you take advertising to extreme, it's all about sex, because that is the ultimate metric. So that's where they kind of lost themselves, is they forgot that, you know, it's not all about engagement. It's also about, you know, what are we creating here? Are we making the world better or worse? How do people feel better or worse? You know, they didn't care about that. All they cared about was how many people are going to click this button, how many people are going to reply. And when you do that, you get up in a dark place. 
you know, because you've only optimized for that one metric of engagement. You know, if we can get every man, woman, and child yelling at each other on Facebook, then we win. It's like, okay, you've won, but you've also kind of destroyed the world, right? Like, was it worth it? I mean, I guess if you're, you know, Zuckerberg, it might have been worth it. But if you're just a regular, you know, citizen of the world, that's not a better place, man. So, you know, discourse tries to take a more nuanced position on this about, you know, yeah, we want engagement, but we also want people to, you know, learn from each other. And Stack Overflow is a system of learning, right? Like uh, discourse is just a lower intensity version of that. It's not all about the learning. It's about, you know, having fun, hanging out, having a good experience and not yelling at each other. That's that's it, you know? And uh, it is kind of amazing to me that they kind of lost sight of this at Facebook. You know, they got so wound up about themselves. All they cared about was Facebook. You know, if it makes Facebook bigger, it's better by definition. And if it doesn't, then it isn't. And that's all they cared about, you know? And I just can't really relate to that. That's not the place I want the world to be. That's not the person I want to be. So... You know, yeah, it's that's hence discourse. Probably, probably to your credit that you can't relate to that. But it also makes me wonder, what do you measure? Like you mentioned Facebook optimized for engagement. What do you optimize for if you are aiming to build something more humanistic? And, and maybe not just you, like maybe, maybe, maybe these aren't things you optimize for at Discord or, Discourse or Stack Overflow, but ideas that you might have about this. Well, I think uh, I take a holistic approach and I have explained this to people before. And, and I, it's about how does this page make you feel when you land on a Stack Overflow page? Does it load fast? I mean, there's a couple of mechanical things. Does it load really fast? Does it have a clear question that, that's actually understandable? Not a bunch of gibberish. Like, here's a clear statement of the problem. Do this, 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 this. And then I have this outcome. Why? Right. Good repro. Right. And then at the bottom, it has highly ranked answers that have been voted up, right? There's a bunch of answers at the bottom you may not get to, right? Just like just like Google results. Who goes to page 10 of the Google results? Who? Who does this, right? Who goes to page three of the Google results? Does anyone, right? So you've got to get the good information floating up. So it's all mostly on the same page. It has to load fast. So you can decide quickly, is this, is this what I want? Yes or no? Okay, no. And quickly go to another page. So speed is a big factor. And also putting clear information, strictly regulated information in the right place at the top and then the highest ranked answers and the formatting is clean, the layout is clean and it loads fast. Very, very simple mechanical stuff. Uh, and then with discourse, it's a little more sophisticated. You have load time, you have, uh, you know, what does it look like? How does it make me feel? But also how do these people make me feel about them, each other and me, right? Are they yelling at each other? Which case, you know, it's, I'm in the middle of a fight. That's not, it's like you walk into a bar and a bunch of people are just punching the crap out of themselves. How does that feel? Right? It's like, whoa, okay. I don't know if I want to hang out here. Whereas if you walk into a restaurant, people are chilling, they're talking, there's like little music playing, maybe some people dancing, throwing darts in the corner, having fun. Maybe some kids are there. You're like, oh, wow, this is a nice place. You know, this feels good, man you know, cool, you know, people are nice to each other, people are dressed, the floors are clean, the lights are, you know, it's well lit, it's not like a dark, dingy dive bar with a bunch of, like, you know, half-broken Budweiser signs and spilled beer everywhere, the bathrooms are clean. The way I describe it is, like, you walk into a Target, you know, and it's like, okay, or like walking to a McDonald's, it's well lit, it's clean, 
the aisles are well marked. It's got, you know, clear products. You know, the, the, the people are, you know, doing their jobs. They're stocking the shelves. They're checking me out. Uh, I can get what I need, get in, get out. It's a good feeling. That's kind of what we shoot for with this course. It's like that holistic feeling of how does this place make you feel when you walk in, right? Uh, that's really important to me. And I look at a lot of discourse sites like that. Like, how does this site make me feel? Um, sometimes the layout is broken. Like they've improved the CSS to the point that it's like, okay, you have completely fucked up the site, right? The CSS is just broken, right? Um, that's bad. Uh, we try to help uh, and we ship, you know, a decent design, but a lot of people like to improve on things, you know, um, or they'll create a ton of categories that make it indecipherable. It's like 500 categories. You can't decide where to go anymore. Um, there's a lot of ways to break it. But I think, again, uh, my personal philosophy is go to this place. How does it make you feel? Think about that. What's being said, how it's being said, the way it looks, the way it loads. How does it make you feel? That's That's what's really paramount to me. And I think the best guidance I can give someone who wants to be a PM is uh, that's the best way to evaluate your product. It's worked well for me anyway. I like that. There's sort of a vibes economy thing growing. And that's, uh, I'm hearing about that more and more, even from crypto venture capitalists who started out as metrics people are now like vibes people. And, uh, that well, uh, this course is very popular in crypto circles, and I think that's great because that's what that's what discourse is designed to do is create sustainable communities of people, you know, being reasonable to each other and not yelling at each other and actually learning and, you know, sharing information and having a good time. That's great. That's fantastic. That's exactly what discourse is designed to do. So, you know, I encourage that. I think it's great. I'm not anti-crypto. I'm not anti-NFT. Um I think you have to be careful with money because money distorts a lot of stuff. But I think some of these are really, really interesting experiments in getting creators paid. And I love that, you know, because I think there's a lot of people, very, very talented people that deserve to make a living from the, their skills. And if we can do that, I think that's great. I'm, 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 I'm totally fan. I think we should. Awesome. Have you had, have you, uh, have you taken a look at idea market at all? Do you have a sense of how it makes you feel? I just, I like that question. On that I haven't had time to yet, but I will after this call, since you asked, I will take a look. Um, my only introduction was the emails that I got and uh, talking to y'all. And I actually talked to my co-founder, Sam, and he, he took a little deeper dive uh, and looked at it and uh, gave me his feedback as well. I was kind of hoping he would be on, but the schedules didn't work out because he's in Australia. Uh, but yeah, I, I will. And uh, I'll let you know. Thank you. And we also have a colleague named Sam in Australia. So maybe they, they'll we'll just do the wrong <laughs> thing. Right. There you go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, Jeff, is there anything you would uh, like, like to add to the discussion, which you feel, uh, you know, we should have touched on or you'd like to touch on? No, I think I think we touched on some really, uh, you know, I think the core issues that are, that are interesting to me and sort of my wheelhouse, what I'm good at, what I have knowledge about. Uh, I think, I think you did a great job of, of, of sort of laying it out and uh, yeah, no, I, I think this is fantastic. The only thing I leave people with is uh, you probably know stack overflow already. I'm really curious for people who haven't looked at discourse. I'm really curious to see what you think of it. If you do look at it um, and ideally use it like, 
if you participate in a discourse community. I love feedback from active discourse users and we're still improving discourse. Like we're about to have a release actually. And I'm really excited about some of the stuff we've done recently with discourse. Like we're eight or nine years in and still just getting to really important stuff. Um, in terms of how we build and how we nudge to have, you know, sustainable, friendly, you know, helpful communities. So I'm always loving feedback on discourse from people who've used it. So please take a look if you haven't and just let me know. I definitely well, will. We'll be, uh, will. yeah. Yeah, Mike, were you going to add yeah, something? Yeah, I was just going to add, it sounds, it sounds like discourse captures a lot of the things that I really appreciate about Reddit or that initially drew me to Reddit. Man, I was such a huge Reddit fan in like 2013, 14. Just what it could have been, what it could be, what it could do. I just thought is the most brilliant thing ever. And I like the way you've kind of maybe squared the circle or did a Venn diagram of the Reddit sort of composability and topic independence with Stack Overflow's um, respect for principles and having some sort of uh, norms, norms enforcement, you might say, or like inbuilt, inbuilt philosophy. So it's not merely a, you know, kind of a, a free for all. And I, I really look forward a to free for all. Exactly. That's how I would describe, although they have gotten better. They finally enforced a lot of stuff long overdue, but Reddit has definitely improved both on the product side and on the sort of philosophical side of we're not like free speech as absolutist because that goes to really bad places in practice as you well know you can just read the read the wikipedia entry for reddit look at the controversy section and you'll know immediately what i'm talking about i remember so. i remember a lot of that stuff um when alan ellen powell was was a, a temporarily ceo in 2015 yeah that that bothered a lot of people and yeah i'm still figuring out where i am on the free speech absolutism you know, phase because one of the benefits that we're we're trying to offer is the ability to have conversations that people won't let you have. And where do you draw the line? And our our solution right now is what goes on chain is on chain, and you can't do anything about that. But we can definitely maintain control over the front end and kind of set an example that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm 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 trying to figure that out because. It seems it seems philosophically dangerous to be anything but free speech absolutist, but it seems literally dangerous to be free speech absolute. So, trying 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 to find exactly that 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 sweet spot. Well, I think one answer is to narrow your audience um, to people that are similarly minded um, who think either okay, it's one hundred percent absolute free speech, fine but you all have to agree to that like before you enter the room. Uh, and then if not, what are the terms and do you agree and just get those people in a room? I think it's about limiting the audience really um, for those scenarios to people who are really willing to take that chance because it can be weird. It can get weird really, really fast in ways that are hard to predict. So I think you just need to know what you're signing up for and have those rules up front say, we're going to try this, right? And also be flexible. Say, look, we're going to try this, but if it gets really bad or weird, we're going to change the rules. Don't mm. be an absolutist about <laughs> the rule that there shall be no rules, right? There's a whole 
there's a whole regular show episode about this that's just brilliant. It's like the place where there's no rules about anything ever, including the rule that there's no rules. <laughs> uh, cool. So, um, yeah, I was, yeah, I, that's the way I think you should approach it. Like, I was going to add in though, you know. <laughs> yeah, thinking yeah. of the you know examples of places that have gone right, it's free speech. I mean. I'm trying not to name names, but I mean, one of the clearest examples of recent years was BitChute, which is like, you click on that site and it's like, as you said, it's like going into this, you, you, you literally don't know. I haven't been on it in a long time now, so I don't know what's going on there, but I remember going on it and obviously its thing is not what well, its thing is nothing, which is like, all right, well, let's just see what's happening. And it's like, wow, you know, this has unleashed some really weird stuff and you just don't you don't even know what to do with it i think that's almost the problem in itself is that it's not always nefarious or horrible but it's like once you've gone to that end of the the spectrum at such an extreme like free speech isn't just free in terms of you can now say the controversial things you can literally just say gibberish to you know and it's like where are what where are we like what what is this it's chaos right it's that that spectrum is equally chaos chaos and order Right. So it's like, all right, well, you ended into complete chaos now, which for a website, it's almost like, look, here's the box. Do what you want in it. It's like you look in it and you're like, I don't want to go there again. <laughs> well, there's an interesting discussion around Substack, which is subscription model based. And they argue that since they're subscription based, they can allow pretty much anything because it's all it's people who are all explicitly opting into that rule set. Right. Like if I subscribe to someone who's like, okay, you can inject bleach to cure yourself of COVID. They signed up for that. That's what they want. Right. That's, that's exact. Literally that's, that's what they want. They're paying to receive that information. Um, Their whole argument is like, well, that's, that's allowed because it's a subscription only model. It's not like it's being broadcast to everyone. So I think that's an interesting way to come at it. I'm not sure how I feel about that yet. But that is their position at Substack. And that's sort of the newest arm or leg of that controversy is what Substack is doing. And some of the people that are coming on to Substack and some of the audiences that they're building are um, unconventional, to say the least. And along with some very conventional people that are just, you know, have cool articles that they post or whatever. So, you know, I think experiments are good, but it is important to know what you're signing up for. I think that's really important. And also to say, look, here are the rules. And also like, we have the right to change the rules once we like decide what we're shooting for. Like, I think absolutism is just not maybe the right path. Like you can start out there, but also leave yourself some wiggle room. Say, okay, we're going to start over here, but we might move over here a little bit over time, depending on what happens, because we ultimately want to, you know, what's the goal? Is it for people to yell at each other? Is it to learn? Like, what's the goal, right? To serve the goal, we may change the rules. So yeah. that would be my advice personally. Um, and make sure everybody's on the same page there. So Yeah, I like that. I like that. And it, it does seem that we're, by the way, the Substack model does seem to have some similarities with ours in the sense that money sort of curates it. Uh, we are trying to broadcast things everywhere, but there is a little bit more of that everyone is watching out for themselves if their money is on the line kind of thing. And if, if people are yeah. you know, willing to risk money on it or willing to choose mm-hmm. that over all the other options to put their money on, that kind of says something. 
Um, but you know, pe- people who are on Substack could move to Ghost. You know, I'm just that's just an option. <laughs> <laughs> or to Mirror, Mirror, yeah. three version where you sell NFTs with your articles and stuff. Um, yeah, exactly. You invent your own currency. Everybody's paid your own currency. Hopefully, not a Ponzi scheme. You know, hopefully, and then. <laughs> See what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I think experimentation is good. I really, really do. But again, everybody's going to be on the same page and uh, understand what you're signing up for. And also be honest with yourself about what it is you're doing. Don't just pretend that you're <laughs> this free speech absolutist when all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa, except for that, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think of that, right? There's going to be a lot of, I didn't think of that. And if mm. you don't <laughs> consider that from the start, you're not leaving yourself a lot of wiggle room and you should, you really should. That's very helpful. So, but I think the, the problem with that is, is that, you know, just to put it in abstract, that if you're in the red circle or if you're in the blue circle, both of these circles basically consider free speech to be, you can say whatever you want within the red circle. So like sites like Gab, etc., in these places and sites, the left-wing equivalent, as you said, they, they're like, oh, I didn't think of that. You know, the people on Gab are like, uh, can they spout radical, you know, really radical Leninism or Marxism? And the same in reverse, right? Like yeah. their alternative, right. their, their opposite is the thing they haven't thought about in that sense. So it's usually people's free speech is like, yeah, you're so free to say anything except beyond that wall, right? Like, but, but they never get to that wall. They never get to that wall because right. it's an echo chamber. And that's the problem with a lot of these, you know, I think we've seen it with all these, um, these free speech, these so-called free speech platforms is no, you've just created an echo chamber for like a very specific recent context of debate. And you, you didn't really think it through. And they, and I think that's the reason they've all died is because it's really boring to be in the, in a room with everyone who agrees. It's like, well, there's, there's, well, right. there's nothing, there's no yeah. interest here. It's like, what do you think? Yeah, I think that as well. All right. Well, I can't be bothered to sign onto the site again because I'm not. There's nothing new on there for me. No one wants to go onto a site where there's nothing new any day. Well, <laughs> it gets back to like, what are we learning? You know, what are, what's the goal? Is it just to repeat mantras that you know? Yes, we all agree the same thing. You know, uh, or is it to learn stuff? Is it to have more nuanced positions? Is it to? It could be just for entertainment, right? Like we just hang out, we have fun, we play poker, we play video games. I don't know. It depends what the goal is. But if the goal is to learn, I, I kind of agree. You're not going to learn much from a bunch of people saying sort of the same things over and over. And in fact, repeating talking points is a huge red flag in my book. Is if you come on a site and you're like, okay, talking point, talking point, talking point. And everything is about those talking points. It's already like you've lost. Like it's just boring. Like nobody wants to hear the same talking points over and over. What I want to hear, and the lesson I give people is like, tell me your story. How did this happen to you? What has your experience been? Tell me something only you could tell me. How did this work for you? Tell me your life story. Tell me your experience. Share that with me. That's what I want to hear. Not talking point, talking point, talking point, right? Tell me about your brother, right? And what happened to him and the stuff he got into and what the consequences were for him. Tell me about that. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear about you. I want to hear your stories, right? We're, 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 we're a society of storytellers and discourse is a storytelling tool, right? What stories are you going to tell? How are you going to tell them? And what experiences have you had? You know, have you not had many experiences? That's a lesson in itself. 
Maybe you should have some more experiences. Maybe you should get out there, do things. So, yeah. That's, uh, as a, I think it's a very nice place to finish up. Yeah, uh, maybe we should all get so, out there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, get out there, build things, yeah. and do stuff. Absolutely. Go into the community, go into stories. nice communities, yeah. learn from them, and then go actually use that knowledge. Yep, and have experiences and share those experiences. That, wonderful. I love it. All right. Well, we'll be sure to put all the the links for your blog, Coding Horror, and also Discourse, but, you know, I'm sure you don't need to, but we'll put them there. So all the links for all the things we've spoken about today will be in the description. Uh, Jeff, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, no, it was a really fun discussion. And, you know, thanks for asking me stuff that, you know, is in my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm good at a certain number of things, and we kind of covered those things. Uh, sort of like massively multiplayer text typing games. That's kind of what I build. <laughs> so uh, hopefully you're all enjoying those games. No, and, uh, given us a lot, yeah. a lot to think about because we are but noobs. <laughs> yes. Well, as are we all. We're all just learning, man. We all learn from each other. That's That's fantastic. So thank you for having me. It's been lovely being here, and I hope this was useful to people. And feel free to ping me specifically about discourse stuff. That's what I want to hear most about. But yeah. Where's, where's a good place to okay. do that on Twitter? Uh, Twitter is good. If you go to my blog and click on the about me part of my blog, information about how to reach me is there. I kind of put that there because it kind of filters some people out who just can't be bothered. <laughs> but you can find it if you go to my blog. I promise you there are ways to find how to contact me <laughs> if you really want to. Awesome. So yeah. much. But yeah. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, it's Jeff. It's been wonderful. Cheers. Bye-bye.